Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. No mai hari mai, kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. And a very big welcome to Our Changing World. On the show this week, Sonia Sly is trying to understand psychopaths and the criminal mind, and whether the movies have got it right. I'd hazard a guess that because this is science and real life, it's bound to be more nuanced and more interesting than what's portrayed on the big screen. Or is it? What did Miggs say to you? Multiple Miggs in the next cell. He hissed at you. What did he say? I think we should discuss death. I think we should discuss what should be done. Horror films have shaped our idea of psychopaths as cold, calculated and sinister. And that may well be the case. But what does a psychopath really look like? And what are the triggers that lead to psychopathic behaviour? Well, it seems there are plenty of misconceptions out there. That these are these blood-seeking killers. We know by now that this is really not the case. Not every single one commits violent crimes. You don't need to have this extreme expression of psychopathic traits to still struggle or to still cause issues in your environment. And this is Professor Hedwig Eisenbart. I'm a psychologist in the School of Psychology at Vic, doing research on emotion processing, specifically also in people committing crimes or showing antisocial behaviour. And that's the thing with psychopathy. You could be living next door to a psychopath or maybe even sharing the same house or bed with someone who has these traits. But before you freak out, it's OK. You're not alone. Everybody has them, but to a larger or lesser extent. So if the question is how many people do we have in general population or, for example, here at university who show those extreme expressions of those, we don't consider that to be some sort of cut-off. Yeah, so we can understand psychopathy as not a one single thing. It's more like something that can be understood as having some subtypes. The first one, the primary type, is driven by personality. The more fearless, dominant type of people 
shows more aggression for the sake of something to achieve a goal of manipulative aggression. The second subtype is way more impulsive and displays a lot of antisocial behaviour. Also a reactive aggression that is linked to this impulsivity. More manipulative too. Most of Professor Eisenbart's research is conducted in the prison system. She says he can't spot a psychopath just by looking at one, even though there are traits that are identifiable. Sometimes you think so. If you then sit down and do the proper assessment, it's actually not true that they're really high scoring. It's not something you can just see. I understand as well that it's really difficult to be diagnosed with psychopathy or even for research to be conducted because people don't necessarily put themselves up for case studies. I tend to not use the terminology of diagnosis because it's not part of the diagnostical manuals. So it's not a personality disorder. We would consider somebody who's really high on the trait might show that disruptive type of behavior that it actually causes harm to themselves or they suffer or predominantly their environment suffers. And that makes something more a disorder like. It's not that straightforward, so it's not like clearly like this is the symptom that we're after. Some people get confused with sociopaths and psychopaths. Yeah, sociopathy or sociopaths, it's just basically an older term, less used in research. Having this connotation that something that's acquired rather than something that is innate has never been a clear definition of it. So we stick to psychopathy. And nowadays, if we conceptualize psychopathy, we refer to Harvey Cleckley's definition based on his book, Mask of Sanity, that includes all these different aspects of uh, psychopathy that are reflected in this low emotionality, low affective swinging, as I call it, this emotional detachment that is the very special part of psychopathy that makes somebody different from somebody who's purely antisocial, impulsive. Then there's this other aspect that is more like the interpersonal, purely antisocial behaviour one. And perhaps it's these kinds of people that are likely to inspire movie characters like Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. What does he do, this man you seek? He kills women. No, that is incidental. What is the first and principal thing he does? What needs does he serve by killing Anger, social acceptance, and uh, sexual frustrations. No, he covets. Would you say that everybody who presents as being extreme on the scale of psychopathy or falling into one of those two categories, are they likely to end up eventually in the prison system? Um, we have most of the time been studying the people who are in prison, only in the last one, two decades, there's been an influx of research also in the general population. Not only seeing it as a trait and comparing how people higher or lower on that trait um, show different other types of personality traits or specific behaviors, but also going into areas where we think people who are highly psychopathic might be harming in another way. They might not be violent, but they might be antisocial towards their employees or they might be violent in terms of verbal aggression, very mean towards their families. This research only grows slowly and it's much more difficult to find these people to do that research. So what 
percentage of the prison population would have these kind of psychopathic traits. 10 to 15 percent in prison populations show very high uh, expressions of psychopathic traits. It depends a little bit on where you go, not only country but also which type of prisons. The number is even higher in some prisons. Up to 30 or 35 percent. At the same time, if we just measure antisocial personality disorder, which is kind of related to psychopathy, find about half of prison populations fulfilling criteria for the antisocial personality. That's really high. Yeah, but it's a little bit because antisocial personality disorder is strongly defined by antisocial behaviour. It's not so much reflecting these other aspects and it's you fulfil criteria pretty quickly. And then there's borderline personality disorder where narcissism, impulse control and manipulation also play a role. From the outset, you would actually not think that this is related to psychopathy because people who suffer from extreme versions of borderline personality traits, they feel themselves like being exposed to strong emotional fluctuations. That is not the case with somebody high on psychopathy. They're actually very low on emotionality, so it's kind of contrary. And interestingly, there's also a difference when it comes to gender. These are slum kids. I was a slum kid. Everybody talks like that. They do not! This is one of my favourite scenes from Stephen King's Misery. What do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Oh, now, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and ten pounds of that bitchly cow corn. And in the bank, do I tell Mrs. Bollinger, oh, here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your Christing money. There, look there. See what you made me do? In prison female populations, women are perceived as being high on borderline personality traits, but they are actually more high on psychopathic personality, sometimes because the way they portray emotional fluctuations has a different background in highly psychopathic women than in, in highly borderline traits. This fluctuation in emotionality has a manipulative side rather than an expression of real emotional turmoil that somebody who's high on borderline personality traits show. Is it a lower emotional mm. engagement with oneself yeah. and yes. ability to express it? Yes. So then it comes out in these other extreme behaviours. It's not that there's no emotionality at all. People who are high in psychopathic traits, they can have outbursts of anger, for example, and can be very happy. The ability to engage in emotion and the way there's an engagement in emotion is different. Somebody who's high in psychopathic traits, when you talk with them and they talk about emotional events, they lost somebody in their family or they had some sort of other spectacular event, they use emotional words, but it doesn't really resonate with you as a perceiver because there seems to be some sort of disconnect from a feeling. And how and why that has an impact on the behaviour, these are the things that we need to figure out. And you know how psychopaths, well, at least in the movies, always seem kind of cold and calculated? What we know is from uh, neurobiological findings, people high in psychopathic traits don't react as strongly as other people to anything that has an emotional relevance for us. Threat, for example. So which is why if they see a dead person or a dead animal, it might not have an emotional impact on them. It might not in the first instance, but the thing is that we actually don't know how that is linked up to the behaviour. So, of course, if I don't care, then I continue being violent or I ignore that person's pain, I ignore that person's crying face. 
people high on psychopathic traits, if they have longer time to perceive something, we're talking about seconds rather than milliseconds, they actually show the same reaction and they can also moderate their emotional reactions. So if we ask them to increase an empathic feeling or whatever type of emotion, positive, negative emotion, they're totally able to do the same thing as other people either has to do with the motivational aspect of how much do I want to engage in that. So do you believe that people with psychopathic traits, are they made or are they born? It's multifaceted. So there is something that um, comes on a genetic basis. And that's because environmental factors count too. Children are never labelled psychopathic. But instead, if they show certain behaviour patterns, they're referred to as callous unemotional traits. So what we see in children who show callous and emotional traits, they have a genetic risk. And so if there is an environment that has a specific type of parenting style, peers contribute to development, this can grow and develop into psychopathic traits in as adults. Kevin, stop that. That's enough. Mom or daddy talk. Kevin, quit that! In the movie, we need to talk about Kevin. Eva played by Tilda Swinton, struggles with a baby that can't stop crying. And this impacts on her connection with her son, Kevin. And later, well, he ends up committing a massacre at a high school. It has been found across different studies that harsh parenting style seems to be playing a role and in consistent parenting style. Traits from the parents, um, fearlessness in the parents, for example, can contribute not only to how you, you are as a parent, but also contribute to the development of or fostering of colors and emotional traits. That, again, does not mean every single parent who has that style will have a colors emotional trait kid. If that comes on top of some sort of risk factor in the first place, then this can increase the likelihood that colors and emotional traits will be carried on. In some children who express those traits early on, like some of them, those traits decrease over time. What is that that actually leads to a decrease of those traits? It's not 100% clear, but perhaps it is something like around those parenting strategies. And if you have a child with these traits, well, it can be tough, and you might even develop a harsher parenting style. Whatever your style would have been in the first place, you are interacting with the child. Your parenting style is adjusting to your child. It's really hard to actually just disentangle those things Mm -hmm. because it can be a reaction. So what would these traits even look like in children? Really not so much caring about other people, also not about peers, not about the family, being low in emotional responding, low empathy, a little bit of meanness also, and low ability to control behavior. Okay, so they might have these as part of their personality. And fearlessness seems to be pretty crucial throughout the whole lifespan and and relevant for the psychopathic traits. The other thing that is important is if those colors and emotional traits come along with what we call conduct disorder in children, which later on in adulthood would be the equivalent to the antisocial personality disorder. And if those colors and emotional traits come on top or in addition to the conduct problems that is kind of the most risky combination for showing all sorts of problem behavior and also having a higher risk of showing antisocial behavior in adulthood and having a worse outcome. And why is fearlessness such a major trait when it comes to psychopathy? 
fearlessness is a definitely a risk factor. But if there is not this impulsivity and these other traits that kind of making somebody more prone to actually commit crimes and be violent, then this whole pathway is not as bad. If you're not impulsive, the colors and emotional trait can be protective, at least for things like internalizing. So they're less prone to develop depression or anxiety in those kids. And in adults, we see some sort of correlations between that as well. So people who are high on psychopathic traits tend to be less prone to develop depression or anxiety. Because there are very high-functioning people with psychopathy that can do really well as you know, CEOs and things like that, yes, right? Yes, there's some work that actually shows that. Again, if we look into these two subtypes, fearless dominance or this primary type, that is driving success. While the other subtype, the other trait, if you have more of the impulsivity, you probably are not so successful because it's much harder to follow through education. It's more difficult to follow through a plan to continue to do the same work for a longer time. This impulsivity also in everyday life can be hindering to be actually successful. Part of Professor Eisenbart's studies also look at the link between childhood trauma and psychopathy. People who are high on psychopathic traits, no matter if it's the primary or secondary, they have a higher likelihood to have had childhood traumas. They also uh, tend to express all sorts of other symptoms later on. They have a higher risk for uh, all sorts of internalizing symptoms, something like depression or anxiety, but also a higher likelihood to show externalizing symptoms. And that can be anything like antisocial behavior, substance abuse. The externalizing kind of reflects this antisocial personality part of psychopathy as well. It's no surprise then that children who have been through traumatic experiences are kind of suppressing their emotions or somehow block them and that's a very interesting question that we're actually also trying to investigate if it is some sort of a shutdown of the emotion system early on in life and that is kind of a protective thing to do and then being less responsive later on thing with that is it can't be a straightforward kind of pathway because And you could consider then somebody who's high on psychopathic traits being just really, really good in emotion regulation and being really good in low emotional responding and in deciding when they want to get into an emotional state or not. Is it almost like a delay in development of emotional regulation? does potentially have something to do with that, but I don't think that's a developmental delay in emotion regulation. Early trauma has a lot of impact on all different aspects of human beings. The whole body system is really affected by that. But what happens when people with psychopathic traits enter relationships? Is it destructive? Is it even possible to maintain a relationship to start with? Wendy? Darling? Light of my life? I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains. Interpersonal relationships are really difficult. The adult people who are high in those traits tend to be very manipulative. They're careless. Relationships are only interesting if there's something to gain. So there is the problem of them probably also not being that interested. There is sometimes some sort of interest in being cared for 
to kind of feed into this narcissistic trait, to be seen and to be valued by somebody because that's still important. Somebody who's really high on psychopathic traits does not care so much about the relationship or also about friendship. They show more often a frequent switch between partners and friends. There's not so much of a strong connection with people. And again, you could say, well, that is probably also a developmental thing because if you have experienced potentially trauma or difficult relationships with uh, caregivers or in your early environment, uh, attachment is, is going to develop in a totally different way. This is going to be problematic later on. What do you go in with when you're doing your research? In, in prison populations, um, we actually do what we call expert assessment, expert rating. So we do an interview with that person and we also look into the file records to find information that we need to actually score on, a, for example, the psychopathy checklist. The other ways would be mainly using self-report and give them questionnaires where they describe themselves as how they see themselves. People with psychopathic traits, especially if they have the narcissistic traits as well, are they more likely to lie? Actually, one of the characteristics of somebody high in psychopathy is to have a proneness to tell stories. Yep. It's part of how they manipulate people, and they see how far they can push the lines of believability. I mean, did you find that their trajectories were all very similar? Not necessarily. Childhood trauma is also can be various. Unfortunately, most people will tell us about a very shattered childhood. It's very sad to hear, it's, but it's also the specific subgroup. When we do research in a general population, it um, can be different. We also don't do this interview-based assessment. We rely more on the self-report because the interview-based assessment, one, the psychopathy checklist, can only be done in prison population because of the need for file records. You say you can't diagnose people with psychopathy per se, but in the instance of the prison population, are they told that they have these psychopathic mm. traits? Because nobody wants to be labelled a psychopath. Most people, of course, don't want to be labelled as such. It is used a lot for predicting recidivism because that research that has been done was heavily investigating that question. Do high psychopathic traits predict if somebody commits a crime again in the future? Because of that heavy emphasis on the research, it's a very negative term. But also because if you are in prison and you know somebody did an assessment and found that you were high on psychopathy, that also means that your prospect of um, being released earlier are very low. It has a really negative connotation. Somebody who's high on psychopathic traits but not in prison would potentially not mind that as a description. And while research isn't really conducted in the general population, it's been done at universities, and the findings have been quite surprising. There is also a lot of childhood um, traumatic events in, in students. can be something like emotional neglect, being not seen as a child emotionally. That is something that was hugely prevalent in the student population. And then we also saw that link between the amount of childhood traumatic events in psychopathic traits in those I mean, and we sometimes get people to contact a psychopathy researcher from general population who say, like, you know what, I did these tests, I think I'm high on those traits. Um, can, you, can you advise me of how to get help? We more often get um, people contacting us who say, I, I think my son, my daughter, my partner, my um, uh, boss is high on psychopathic traits. What should I do? Hmm. Imagine alerting your boss that they're a psychopath. Uh, you might just be out of a job. So, in these circumstances, 
the best advice. So you would want to get, get some proper assessment. The crucial bit is a little bit to find somebody who does that. As somebody who's in the environment of somebody who might be high on psychopathy, being stressed by that and feeling some sort of uncertainty if it's good to be around that person or being uncertain of how to deal with that situation, definitely good to seek out help, advice, a counselor, figuring out what's going on there. And if there's something that is harming you as a person, then to actually find a way to get out of the situation. As the person saying, like, I'm affected by that, it's really hard to find counselors. Not all of the people high on psychopathic traits are thinking that that's the, how they want to be. There are people who would like to be able to change. While the study of psychopathy is practical in terms of assessment of those in the prison population, research in this area is also useful in other ways. So fascinating to study also because we learn so much about emotion processing and how emotion relates to behaviour in general population by studying people who are high on those traits. Thanks, Hedwig. That was Hedwig Eisenbart from the Effective and Criminal Neuroscience Lab at Victoria University of Wellington. And that's the show. As always, you can listen again on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. While you're there, why not sign up for our free weekly email newsletter? If you'd like to stay in touch, we are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. And we are available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Many thanks for your company. I'll be back next week. But until then, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.